So God has given me the opportunity to redeem myself a little bit uh, this week um, from last week's lesson. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, and I hope you didn't. Uh, yeah, that means you did notice uh, that in the middle of the lesson, I, I realized that I was missing a page in my lecture, and, and that was bad. Uh, interestingly, it was the most important part of the teaching, so it was the climax of the teaching. And I, uh, you know, But the Lord uses these things to humble you and uh, to show you how, how things are. Um, so I had to fill in as best as I could from memory and just sort of connect it with the rest of the uh, teaching. But, so forgive me for that. Uh, but just a brief summary. Last week we began the topic of original sin. Now the whole series is about sin, but this one, uh, these couple of weeks have been specifically about original sin. And we've been using the Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, we use the question, uh, question number 18, which you'll see here in the projection to help explain the sinful state in which man fell as a result of Adam's sin in the garden. Uh, So let's let's read it again. It says, what is the sinfulness of the state into which man fell? And the answer is, the sinfulness of the state into which man fell includes the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of the righteousness which he had at first, and the corruption, every part of his nature, which is commonly called original sin together with all actual sins which flow from it. So that's a summary of what we've inherited through Adam, simply by being human, by being united with Adam. So last week we were were able to pull out two main effects that mankind received through imputation from Adam's fall in the garden. The two things are, number one, Adam's guilt, which is Adam's blame or responsibility has been placed on us because we're united with him. And the second part that we pull from here that we've inherited is the corruption of our nature. So again, the guilt of Adam and also the corruption of our nature. So last week we discussed the way Adam's guilt was applied to us due to our union with Adam and Adam being our federal head, our representation. But today I want to talk about the second effect of original sin, which is Again, the corruption of our nature. So we're going to get into the detail of what what are some of the ways that the fall has affected us um, and our nature. Original sin, um, as corruption of our nature, can be divided into two basic categories. The corruption of the mind and the corruption of the will. But I'm going to start with the mind. We're going to talk about uh, how um, the corrupt nature given to us through Adam, has affected the way we think and the way we use our mind. So with respect to the mind, we can see that uh, in Scripture, um, original sin is something that has affected our mind and has caused mental blindness. So that's the first characteristic of one of the effects of the fall, is mental blindness. And we see this theme of man being spiritually blind throughout the Scripture. Let's look at Isaiah 42, verses 6 through 7. Can someone read that? I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. Thank you. So you can immediately see that in this verse, it's referring to a spiritual reality in which our Lord seeks to open our eyes that are blind. You see there, um, to open the eyes that are blind. Okay. Um, now we also see Jesus speaking about recovering the sight to the blind. You see that in Luke uh, 4.18. Can someone read that? Yeah, so that's a sort of a mission statement, right, of what Jesus came to do. Now, in that passage, Jesus, Jesus may seem to be only referring to earthly matters, like he came to bring liberty to captives, sight to the blind, and liberty to the oppressed. It sounds a lot like the social gospel. However, Jesus was actually pointed, pointing forward to spiritual matters. And one of the themes that you see here is this act of recovering the sight to the blind. This is beyond recovering 
vision, right, from a physical sense. We know that. Even though we've seen him heal people in a physical sense, it was, it was merely a pointer to something spiritual. Again, this is beyond the physical sense. Jesus is not proclaiming the good news about LASIK surgery, right? He's not uh, trying to recover the sight in that sense. Jesus is talking about restoring spiritual blindness. And he does this, uh, he does this act on those who, by faith, trust in Jesus, receiving a new heart through regeneration. Now, many texts speak of regeneration, this idea of being born again, um, as enlightenment or being enlightened. Or uh, another example would be light shining upon us. And that, that, that's sort of the way that the Bible speaks about being born again. Some of those verses, we're not going to look at them, but just to give you a list of them, that speak about regeneration in, in that way where light is being sh- uh, shunned in the darkness. Second uh, Corinthians 4.6, Ephesians 5.14, First Thessalonians 5.5, Psalm 97.11. And the way it's described in these verses is as if we were by nature in darkness and regeneration is that God is turning the light on and now all of a sudden we see things clearer. But would you mind saying that scripture Absolutely, yeah. It's Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, you guys, you guys want them. Okay. Uh, yeah, it's 2 Corinthians 4, 6. Okay, and then Ephesians 5, 14. Then we have 1 Thessalonians 5, 5. And then Psalm 97, 11. And I would, I would say, read them in the context, and you kind of get, you kind of you see where uh, this idea of re- regeneration is very close tied to this um, analogy of light shining upon the darkness and, and being able to see clearer. Now, apart from Christ, what sin does is sin blinds and darkens the understanding by destroying the consciousness of divine things. Okay? If you remember before the fall, Adam was created in a state of goodness and his soul was inclined towards love for God. That was Adam's original state. right? That was his nature. He loved God, he served God, and that was the easiest thing for him to do because that was natural for him to do. However, after the fall, the soul is no longer conscious of such love and reverence towards God. And we see that right when uh, a person is born under Adam, they don't they don't have this immediate reaction naturally to seek after God. And we see that throughout the scriptures. The knowledge of such affections with respect to God is non-existent. Um, And non-existent, I don't mean the knowledge of the fact that he exists, but the knowledge of having such affections towards God doesn't exist. Similar to a blind man knowing about colors, right? Or like a deaf man understanding sound. And for this reason, God... The object of these affections is therefore unknown for the same reason. Um, And those who are born again, right, all of us here, hopefully, um, our experience is that that light gets turned on. All of a sudden we see things clear. We understand in a deeper level, not just the facts about God, not just theology, but when the lights are turned on, we actually experience um, what it means to know God. And, And knowing would be, uh, this intimate relationship with God, um, not just this abstract understanding of God, but an actual experiential uh, understanding of God. Um, yeah, so the Bible says that Christians experience a wisdom and discernment given to them through regeneration and by the mere fact that their nature in Adam has been interrupted, right? Interrupted by God. And, and us, when we're born again, we enter into a newness in Christ. And I'll show you a scripture that talks about that. 1 Corinthians 2, 6, 8. Can someone read that? Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Hmm. So there you have it. The spiritual discernment spoken here in this verse is the immediate consciousness of a renewed man. And this, however, is not the experience of the natural man due to the fall. The natural man rejects that which is of God. And just as 
wisdom is given to those who are renewed in Christ, what is given to those who are uh, still in their nature? Ignorance. Ignorance is brought forth by sin and those who are enslaved to sin. Notice how sin is often described in the scripture as sort of a, a voluntary ignorance. Um, I'll show you a verse, 2 Peter 3, verses 3 to 6. Can someone read that? Knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days. The scoffing, following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and courage. Yeah. Thank you. So notice what it says in verse 5. It says, for the, I'm sorry, for they deliberately overlook this fact. <coughs> See, some versions say they willingly are ignorant of. And so this shows the blindness as a result of original sin. Um, it happens because the will or the desires of man have been given a new inclination after the fall causing man to, to pursue willful ignorance when it comes to the truth of God. So this is something that uh, man naturally does on purpose. Um, they, they, they are satisfied with dumbing down the knowledge of God, which is relevant to all things of life, um, and they do this willfully. Okay, let's move on to another form of corruption when it comes to the mind. Another form of corruption with respect to the mind is insensibility of the conscience. Now this doesn't mean that man loses his conscience completely, right? It means that sin nature stupefies it. Another word for this is the word seared, right? Which means to burn the surface of something with a sudden intense heat. That's what, that's what happens uh, progressively um, in the nature of Adam when you're born through Adam. Uh, when this is done, right? Uh, to, to one's own conscience. It is done by the act of self-inflicted suppression of the truth of God with a burning resistance, leaving the conscience numb to future acts of rebellion, of rebellion against God's moral law. Uh, so again, the, the sinner, the person still left in their natural state, progressively suppresses the truth of God from the beginning. And they do that so that... Uh, sin would continue on manifesting throughout their, their life. And we see this in 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Here's the verse. Someone read that. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. There you go. You see that word seared. And again, that's that um, insensibility of the conscience. And this too is a result of a corrupt nature imputed to us through Adam. A third effect on the mind is pollution. By pollution, I mean the pollution of reason. Okay, we'll see that in Titus 1.15. Can someone read that verse? So this verse shows us that the mind of the unregenerate is impure and defiled. Romans 1 makes it even more clear. Look at Romans 1. I'll go ahead and read that. It says, For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, or gave thanks to Him, or give thanks to Him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So <clears throat> the here's an example. The pollution... The pollution of reason is seen in certain speculations of 
creation and, and the origin of life, right? And they create mythology, right? Psalm 14.1 says that the fool says in his heart that there is no God. And that's an example of such pollution. And notice that when you read Psalm 14.1, the following uh, words under it say, and they are corrupt. The fool says in his heart that there is no God. They are corrupt. For example, logic demands that if anything exists now, right, you look around and, and things exist, something has to have always existed, or else nothing can possibly exist now. And that's, that's logical. Yet, because of the corruption of human nature resulting in the pollution of the mind, we have modern scientists rejecting God as creator and concluding with theories of spontaneous generation as an explanation of the origin of life where nothing exists at first and then all of a sudden something randomly exists. And this is taught in the most respected institutions of so-called higher learning. But again, this is not science. This is mythology. Yet we see that as a result of the fall, mankind by nature exchanges the truth for a lie. And this is due to a desire to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. In other words, because of the fall, it is natural for man to want to get God out of their thinking. And a godless mind is a sinful mind, a corrupt one. Especially God being the source of all that is good, all that is true, and all that is beautiful. Uh, in the book, Thinking, Loving, and Doing, uh, it was edited by John Piper and Dave Mathis. There's a chapter uh, by Albert Moeller, and I love this uh, chapter because he talks about the effects that sin, uh, sin in the fall had on mankind. Um, and he, he has a category called the noetic effects of sin. And Albert Moeller listed about 14 negative effects that exist in the human mind that can only be traced back to being a result of sin. And I'm just going to throw the list out there because I, th I thought it was very interesting. Uh, this is Albert Moeller's list, and I'm sure there's much more than just the 14 that he lists. But here we go. He says, uh, the effects of sin in the mind is ignorance, right? So where there's ignorance in the mind, we know that to be an effect of the fall. And, and what brings us hope is that as I list these effects, um, we can look forward to heaven, and we can look forward to a future glory where these things would be completely eliminated, um, because I'm guilty of probably all these uh, 14 listed. But number one is ignorance. Number two is distractedness. Um, that's a big one for me, ADHD. Uh, forgetfulness. Prejudice, right? When you prejudge something before you actually find out the facts. Faulty perspective. Intellectual fatigue. I struggle with that. Inconsistency, when you think through things and you're not consistent, it's a result of the fall in the mind. Failure to draw the right conclusion, so you have this great idea but you don't conclude right, doesn't flow right. Um, intellectual apathy. Dogmatism, or rather, I like to use a different word, closed-mindedness, right? Not being open to correction when it comes to truth. Intellectual pride, uh, vain imagination. Uh, vain imagination is big. Uh, because we could even see it in the garden that there are things that man was not to get into when it comes to the mind, right? The knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and we struggle with that today. Again, vain imagination. Miscommunication. <clears throat> How many times we think we said something, we said something completely wrong. Uh, someone, someone once told me, I don't know who it is, I don't know where I heard it, but uh, when you preach or you teach, you, tech, you basically have three messages. The one that you said, the one that you think you said, and the one that people actually heard. Um, and so, yeah. But again, miscommunication is big. Uh, and then the last one is partial knowledge, which uh, is basically like cloudy understanding, you know, uh, not fully being able to understand. And so these are 14 lists of the effect uh, of sin in the mind. Before sin entered the world, it is believed that these effects in the mind were non-existent. Imagine that. But because of the corruption of sin and, and the way it's corrupted our nature, the human mind has become polluted. Now, 
we're all still uh, in, in this condition, even though we've been born again and redeemed. We still struggle with our old nature. So what is the solution for a polluted mind? And the answer is absolute dependency on God's word, right? The one thing that is not polluted, the one thing that we can trust with our lives. And in the midst of these ideas, uh, I'm sorry, in the midst of ideas and human thoughts, we know that they're fallible. But in the midst of all that, we can trust fully in the infallible word of God and allow it to dictate truth for us, right? So whenever we think we know something, it's, it's best to check with that one thing that never fails, which is the Bible, um, and, and we must allow it also to transform us by renewing our minds and our thoughts on, on every uh, category of, of life that we can think of. Uh, and, and we see that in Romans 12, too, being transformed by the renewal of the mind. Now let's talk about the corruption of the will. This is that second category. Remember I said the corruption of the mind, and then there's the corruption of the will. With the fall of Adam came a corruption of the will of all mankind. And with respect to the corruption of the will, there are a few things that have come about uh, in the will of man due to the fall. The first thing is enmity. And the word enmity is seen throughout the scriptures. And the word means being actively opposed or hostile to something or someone. Now, in this case, we're talking about being hostile towards God. And we're going to look through some verses that show that this is something that we've um, received as a corruption in our will. First, I want us to look at a verse um, in the New Testament, which is Romans 8, 7 through 8. Uh, and this verse talks about the will of a person who is in the flesh. Or in other words, uh, the will of the person who is still in Adam and has not been born again yet. So can someone read Romans 8, 7 through 8? For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Thank you, Dave. So <clears throat> the, the King James Version says, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can it be. I like I like looking at both versions there. Um, we know that the law of God reveals to us, in essence, the very character of God, right? When we look at the law, we know this is God's holy standard. This says something about God. Um, it, lists, it is a list of standards that reveal the holiness of God and the goodness of God. And to obey the law is to honor God for who he is, right? We all agree with that. However, we see in verse 7 that Paul gives us a reason why those in the flesh are hostile to God. Why are they hostile to God? And the reason is, um, the reason is what follows. When he says, for it does not submit to God's law, or referring to the carnal mind, the carnal mind does not submit to God's law, that's the reason why man rejects God. In other words, the unbeliever naturally is at enmity with God because of his hatred towards holiness and righteousness that comes from God. Therefore, the unbeliever, the person that has not been born again, will not submit to the law of God, which places him in a hostile position, a rebellious position before God. And this is why when God is brought up in conversations, think about that, when you talk to an unbeliever or when you try to evangelize or, or sort of give hints that you're a Christian and you, you try to speak on things regarding the Lord in front of people who are not believers. It's like talking about politics. It can feel like the most awkward situation. And even discussing matters of, you, you don't have to directly talk about God, but even discussing matters of righteousness and goodness, unless, unless it's somehow self-serving, this can really make people uncomfortable. And it's because approaching the holy means to be judged and condemned and forces people to deal with their guilt. And that's the reason why unbelievers just don't want anything to do with it. Now, if only they would humble themselves and confess, they might be surprised by grace, right? That's the call for every person, to humble themselves, to confess their sin. Uh, and they would, they would probably be surprised by grace from the Lord. 
The Bible says that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. However, even repentance is impossible if God not act first in their heart. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Let's look at this verse, Isaiah 38 through 11. Can someone read that whole passage? interesting. It says, do not prophesy to us what is right. It's like, please don't. Um, speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. In other words, the unbeliever or those who reject God, they, they rather hear something a little bit more soft. Um, leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. And again, this is a clear indication of the enmity which exists in man, desiring to hear God no more. Um, let's go on to another effect of the corruption in the will. Another effect of the corruption of the will is hatred, and specifically hatred towards God. So this is different. This is not just I want to, I can't handle God, but this is I hate God. And the Bible teaches that Adam, that in Adam, the natural inclination is hatred towards God. Now you may be thinking, Will, I know a couple of people, I know people who are unbelievers, yet I don't think they necessarily hate God. You may have even been raised, or some people may have even been raised with feeling that hatred is such a strong word. Let's use another word. Uh, however, the hatred towards God is in fact what exists in the heart and the will of a person who has not been born again, regardless of whether the term is a little heavy. Practically speaking, it is what what they feel, and it is what, what they uh, live out. Let's look at this verse, Romans 1, 28, 31. Uh, I'll read that. It says, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, there it is, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Okay, that's a, that's a description of the unbeliever. And here we have a list that Paul uses to describe those in enmity with God. And verse 30, again, shows haters of God as one of them. If, if, again, if all the other characteristics have not already made that clear. And interestingly, Jesus himself received the same kind of hatred. It makes sense because he is the God-man. And that same rejection, that same hatred was, was shown towards Jesus, the God-man. I'll show you a couple of verses. John 7, 7. Can someone read John 7, 7? There you go, going back to um, God or being in the presence of the holy tends to judge the person who's, who's around them. But again, it hates me because I testify about it and, it, and its works are evil. Another verse, John 15, 18 through 19. Can someone read that? Yeah, so even though many religious leaders at the time devoted themselves to the Torah, the law of God, Jesus proved them to be hypocrites and lawbreakers pretending to be holy, yet God knew the truth. Jesus only proved that their love was a love for self, 
and a hatred towards God. And this is the same for many today who profess the love for God but truly hate Him practically, right? Many can say they love Him, but practically speaking, they hate Him. Another effect of a corrupt will is the hardness of heart. And this too is a result of Adam's fall. Let's look at Acts 19, 8 through 9. Can someone read that passage? Yeah, so many of us may be witnesses of this kind of thing, right? Again, we should not be surprised by this. There are times when we may try to speak to an unbelieving family member or an unbelieving friend, uh, and yet they become stubborn and continue in unbelief. We may even pose a good argument about the existence of God and the need for an atonement. And yet even while reason and logic are in line with the truth claims of the Bible, a person may harden his heart and choose to continue in unbelief. So there you go again, this, uh, this result of, of, of the fall, this hardening of the heart. Um, the, uh, effect of the cor- another effect of the corruption of the will is aversion. This word aversion means a dislike or a distaste for or loathing of something or someone. Now, this may seem, this may seem to be similar to the word hatred. Uh, in, in some way, it is. However, aversion speaks more about taste and preference. So this is an effect of the will, I mean, effect of the fall on the will of man. Their taste, their preference has changed. It's when someone finds someone or something to be disgusting or ugly when in reality it ought to be desired and to be seen as beautiful. Now, here, here's an example of this. Let's look at John 5, 39, 40. I'll read it. Verse says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So in other words, the Pharisees would look into the scriptures to seek eternal life. And when they found out that the eternal life was in this guy, they just rejected it. Again, there was a, something wrong with their, with their perspective, something wrong with their taste. Um, and again, Jesus appears before many who sought the scriptures seeking eternal life, yet they blocked out the fact that the scriptures pointed to Jesus as the way to eternal life. But again, the corruption of the will, because of that strong uh, disinclination towards Jesus, they refused it altogether. Their taste, their perspective was distorted due to their sinful, sinful inclinations. Now, just to uh, give you an example, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the phrase, beauty is in the eye of the beholder, right? Are you guys familiar with that phrase? Beauty is in the eye of the beholder. In other words, many think that uh, someone or something can be beautiful based on how you look at it, right? <coughs> But is that true? Is something beautiful and good because of the way you understand it or receive it? Is goodness and beauty based uh, subjectively on the person who views it? Now, you may or may not be familiar with an artist by the name of Jason Pollock. He was a, he was a painter. Uh, you guys know about that? He was a pretty influential painter, known for having a unique style of painting. Uh, in fact, he was given an uh, exhibition, exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York, and I think in London as well. And he was known for uh, a style of painting which was called dripping. Uh, and this method, this method, let me describe it to you, was to allow paint to drip on a plain white canvas. As the paint touched the canvas, right, what would happen? It would chaotically splatter in every direction. And, you know, he would add colors and mix it in. Uh, it was a mess. And it would create random shades of color splattered in every direction. Okay, this was his art. Right? He'd look at it and say, this is, my, this is my masterpiece. Now, Pollock's work uh, has been the subject of a lot of debates, critical debates. While many modernists were fascinated by his art, some would criticize Pollock's work as 
mere unorganized explosion of random energy, and therefore it was meaningless. <laughs> and some say that the paintings were actually gestures of liberation from things like value, things that were political, that have political importance. It was just a way to express a rejection of political importance, uh, an a liberation from certain aesthetic rules. And I would imagine behind all that is this feeling of liberation from any moral standard, right? This was all expressed in this explosion of, of what he would call fine art. And I'm, I'm not an artist in that sense, so I'm not going to judge uh, whether the art was good or not. Um, but he, here, put yourself in that situation, right? Imagine, uh, well, I'll put myself in that situation. Imagine I decide to become an artist, and I take a plain canvas, right? And as I grab my paintbrush to paint, ready to paint, I go for it, and then I stop. And I don't let the paint touch the canvas. And I look at the plain white canvas and say to myself, you know what? This right here is a masterpiece. And I don't paint at all. It's just a plain white canvas. This is a masterpiece. Now, because of the distorted worldviews in the world, everyone just applauds me. I say, wow, what a masterpiece. This is plain white canvas. No paint on it. Uh, and again, because of the, <laughs> the modern thinking today, I win awards. Uh, and they place my plain white canvas in a famous museum to be exhibited. Now, I say this to say that. I say that to say this. That according to the Bible, there is such thing as wrong or right, right? And when we judge art, right, when we, look at, when we listen to music, when we judge anything, right, there are such things as wrong or right. And there is such thing as beautiful and ugly. And where do we come to that standard? Where do we find these rules? In a weird way, it's, it's something that ought to be within us. We ought to know instinctively. However, because of the fall, we have to go back to what I said before, the word of God that, that reveals the standard of truth, beauty, and goodness. And it's ultimately defined by God, right? The creator, who is the source of all beauty, goodness, and truth. And when we, in our sin, begin to enjoy and find things to be beautiful, which in fact God finds to be evil and gross and ugly, then is something wrong with that painting? No, something's wrong with us, right? Something's very wrong with our perspective. And there are many things that the unbelieving world find to be beautiful and praiseworthy that God himself abhors and counts as evil. And therefore, as a result of Adam's sin, the natural man has a deep-seated aversion to that which pertains to God. Okay? I'll move on. The next corruption with respect to the will is, I can't pronounce this word well, but obstinacy, I think that's the way you say it. This word obstinacy means to be stubborn, right, in regards to God's commands. You've probably read in the scripture when Israel was referred to as a stiff-necked people, Right? Again, that's that idea of being stubborn. Uh, Deuteronomy 31, 26 to 27. Can someone read that passage? Take this book of the law and put it by the side of the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God, that it may be there for a witness against you. For I know how rebellious and stubborn you are. Behold, even today, while I am yet alive with you, you have been rebellious against the Lord. How much more after my death? Hmm. There you have it. So the natural man is one that continues to rebel against God. And this is what's happening here with Israel. And this is actually the life story of Israel. When you look at the history of Israel, at first they would praise God for his mighty acts of grace, right? Then after a while, they would get accustomed to God's grace. And then after a while later, They'd begin to expect God's grace, even to the point where they felt that it was owed to them. And then at, at some point, they would forget God and fall into idolatry until God brought judgment upon them, reminding them, hey, I'm God. This is who God is. And you ought to obey me. You ought to follow me. You ought to be my people. Similarly, this, this may be our story as well. I know it is with, with me. How many of us have been stubborn and continue to go back to our carnal desires? And disobey God until God has to remind us again who is Lord. I know I'm guilty of that. 
Yet this too is a result of the corruption of the will through Adam, and we must war against that old nature. Okay, that stubborn, that stubbornness. And finally, we see that the corruption of the will through Adam's fall has also created bondage. Another word would be <clears throat> slavery to sin. And this is uh, bondage of the will of the natural man. Now, the bondage of the will, this speaks, this speaks on the inclination of the will that everyone under Adam is locked into. Now, I don't want to go, go too far into it because Pastor Rick is going to teach on the will next week. But I will say this, that the Bible teaches that in Adam, the will of man is locked into a disposition that is not able to not sin. I'll repeat that again. The will of man after the fall, all who are born under Adam, is locked in a position that he is not able to not sin and die. As opposed to the belief that we're morally neutral, you can choose heaven or hell kind of thing. Or even morally good by nature, where, where you, you were born good. Uh, but again, you, uh, all who are in Adam are locked into a disposition that they are not able to not sin. I think the, the phrase is non passe, non pacare et more. And again, this means that everything that a person does, again, this is a person who is not born again, in the natural state, all that he does is sin. Now, I know that brings confusion because we've seen unbelievers do great things. But again, uh, even though unbelievers may seem to do nice things, it is never done unto the Lord for the praise of his glory, right? You don't see unbelievers doing things and acts, acts of goodness for the sake of God to get glory. And the reason why is because they cannot genuinely do it, right? They can't do it honestly. And, and again, when I say honestly, is that their will doesn't uh, incline towards a goodness that praises God. Sin is mixed into the intentions of those deeds performed by the unbeliever. And again, that's counted as sin before God. What this means, that un this means that unless God intervenes in the life of the sinner, he will remain in a state of constant rebellion against God and eventually die in that state, receiving his due punishment. So unless the person, the person is born again, he will remain in that state. Uh, here's the verse. <clears throat> Jeremiah 13, 23. Can someone read that? Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? The answer is no, they can't. Therefore, that applies to whether you can do good those who are accustomed to evil. No human convincing can change that disposition of the will. You don't have the key to the door of their heart, right? You're not that special. Yet God does. God is, is the only one that can do that work, changing the will of a person. Uh, John, John 6, 41 through 44, I'll read that. It says, so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, and this is referring to Jesus, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answers them, do not grumble among yourself. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, clear uh, indication that only God can bring someone into a state of regeneration. Now, in the next verse I'm about to show you, Romans 6, 20 to 22, we'll, we'll, we'll see that your will was in bondage to a state of sinful desire, yet... In Christ, that will changes and becomes a slave to righteousness, right? You're always a slave, but you're either a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And Romans 6, 20 through 22 says, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, when you were a slave to sin, you were free in the sense where you had not that uh, access to it. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. 
verse 22, but now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Again, this is a display that God has to switch that position in your heart. And last verse, uh, Romans 9, 16. I'll have someone read that. It's just one little one there. Amen. Depends on, not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so the state of the, the, the corruption of the nature and the will can only be changed by the will of God, right? Him having mercy upon us and, and changing our disposition. So conclusion. Um, my last point here is in regards to the last statement made in question 18 going back to the uh, Westminster Shorter Catechism. Let's look at that question again. It says, what is the, sin- the sinfulness of the state in which- into which man fell? The answer is, the sinfulness of the state into which man fell includes the guilt of Adam's first sin, the lack of the righteousness which he had at first, and the corruption of every part of his nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual sins which flow from it. And I want to focus on that last part, together with all actual sins which flow from it. So, the, the state in which man fell due to Adam's sin is both the guilt, like we talked about in the first week, and the corruption, which we spoke about now, which is obtained from our union with Adam. But this also means that even though we are guilty for Adam's sin at the garden, we are also guilty by virtue of having the nature in, in, in itself. In other words, just by having that corrupt nature applied to us, we're guilty for that very reason. Okay, um, having that corrupt nature, having that mind, having that heart that has been tainted with sin, that makes you guilty alone in its own category, as well, of course, with the guilt that has been imputed to you from Adam and his first sin. In other words, simple terms. By being born this way, right, that's, that's the point. By being born this way, we're still guilty before God for it and have the responsibility to repent from such a nature and seek for transformation and grace that comes from God alone. No, you know, I know, especially with the controversy of homosexuality and, and things of that nature in regards to the church and how Christians ought to deal with uh, so-called uh, Christian homosexuals or, or uh, Christians who have same-sex attraction. Again, we're still guilty before God for having such nature, being born this way, And every person still has an obligation to repent and seek after grace from God and transformation from God that can only be given to you through the Holy Spirit and trusting in Jesus Christ. This does away with this idea that some sin is acceptable because it is the way that you were born. The corruption of our nature which produces sin is counted as sin also. Okay? Yet the Bible calls all men to deny themselves and take up their cross and follow Jesus. Uh, uh, you see that in Matthew 16, 24. So with that said, we conclude this lesson on the corruption of nature. Next week we'll get into uh, part three of the same subject, the doctrine of original sin. So I'll close with that. Anyone have any questions or comments? Yes. Yeah. Would that be they choose to be by the will? Well, absolutely. And, and I want to make this clear that the choosing department of your nature is together with your nature. In other words, that voluntary action to sin or to be deceitful, it's, it's, even though it's your own voluntary act, uh, it, it's, only, it's your own voluntary act because that is your nature. So they're tied together. But yeah, uh, uh, to answer your question... Uh, it is a part of the corruption of the mind. Yeah, amen. Yes. Yes, that's great. I'm glad you brought that up. Yes. We are not sinners because we sin. In other words, what makes us a sinner is not, oh, I sinned that one day. But we are sinners. I'm sorry, because, but we sin because we're sinners. In other words, the sinner part is a characteristic of who we are by nature. 
And I, I say nature as second nature, not that we were uh, created that way, but we were born that way under Adam. So that's a great, great point. Yeah. We sin because we're sinners. That's, that's who we are in Adam. Any other comments? I think that was John Owen, right? That said that. Uh... Okay, yeah, very good quote. Yeah. Questions, comments? All right, perfect. We're on time. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and showing us the reality of uh, our nature in Adam. However, we read in Romans 5 that that because of this sin that Adam has committed, causing death to all men, you came as a second Adam, Lord. You came uh, to restore things back to your intended purposes, Lord. You, you came to do away with sin and death. And Father, we can trust in the one man that was able to beat sin, defeat sin, and defeat death itself, Lord, which is a result of sin. Um, and Father, in him, Father, we have eternal life, and we just want to thank you that you have chosen to show a people so in- insignificant in history, Lord, us, um, about the goodness of the gospel, and you have changed the disposition of our heart, and you have placed us in a path that we can... Uh, be further sanctified, renewing our minds which were corrupt because of the nature inherited through Adam and also the will, that desire that constantly wants to rebel against God. Lord, you've given us the answer to that. You have changed our disposition. You have uh, done this as a gift of grace to us, Lord, and we thank you that you did not leave us in that state, but that you have shown us Christ and his glory. And so we thank you and we pray that we would meditate on this truth um, until you come and, and, and get us. So we thank you and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.